Thank you, Dr. Shields. It's an honor to be here. I've known about Thomas Aquinas for several years and have come to know it um, closer hand by virtue of my son's involvement here this last year. So it's truly an honor and I thank you very much for those words. Um, and I just came from a spectacular dinner and so I thank all of the students who are involved in that and the faculty for being so hospitable to me since I've been here. Deo gracias that the semester is well underway in person and I'm very happy that I'm able to be here. When I was originally contacted about this, this was before the virus really uh, beset us and had some doubts that this was gonna come about. So I'm very, very grateful. I'm very especially grateful that uh, our semesters, our respective semesters are up and running, uh, not through a screen, but in the flesh. 13 months ago, I was privileged to be in your majestic auditorium for the first matriculation ceremony of Thomas Aquinas College, New England. Just prior to that event, my moistening eyes witnessed a poignant presentation at the flagpole right up the road from here. And many of you were there, and you will remember the situation, the scene. The colors were raised, and your bishop offered a prayer, and Mr. Donald Glasgow the vice chair of the board of Northfield Mount Hermon, your predecessors on this capacious campus, presented Dr. McLean with a 400-year-old edition of St. Thomas's Summa, declaring that he was, quote, giving Thomas Aquinas to Thomas Aquinas. So your name, it seems, really does indicate your essence. You really are a school under the patronage of and imbued with the religious and intellectual commitments of the angelic doctor. Not that I was ever in doubt about this. The many outstanding alumni and alumnae of Thomas Aquinas College, whom I've had the pleasure of coming to know over the years, one of whom taught me at Notre Dame, and some of whom I myself have taught, or I should probably say I largely observed as they taught themselves, had long since confirmed in my mind the robust Thomistic ethos of your school and I should add the integrity, authenticity, and excellence of the formation imparted here. So given this Thomistic commitment, I thought that I would structure my remarks this evening along the lines of an article from the Summa. Now I have a little bit of trepidation about doing this. I've only tried this once before, and it was a failure. <laughs> now, I know that you did not come here tonight to hear me tell stories about myself. You may have come to hear some stories about my son, Paul. <laughs> but those I will keep close to the heart. But I will tell you this one personal anecdote about myself. I attended a public high school in Fairfax County, Virginia, just south of Washington, D.C. And in senior year, one of my friends was elected the student body president. And in his largesse, he bestowed plum positions. By means of such nepotism, I ended up with the exalted title of publicity coordinator. Now, Five minutes spent with me will make you realize how poor a choice this was. I do not like to coordinate, and I loathe advertising. Now, my first assignment was to publicize an upcoming student dance. Ordinarily, this would have been done with posters and balloons and chalk, etc. Did I mention I have no artistic talent? So what was I to do? Well, at the time, I had recently discovered the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. By virtue of two dated black tomes, the Random House basic writings, that for some reason, perhaps, I'm not sure, remnants from my father's liberal arts education, sat on the bookshelves in my family's study. And I had become intrigued by St. Thomas's style of argumentation. So rejecting the garish glitter 
the signs and the streamers, I spent one happy afternoon in all earnestness constructing a Thomistic argument for why students at Mount Vernon High School should attend the upcoming dance. <laughs> it would seem that you should not attend the dance. Moreover, moreover, but on the contrary, I respond that it must be said to the first, to the second, and so on. I was very proud of this mini treatise, and I eagerly submitted it to my student government colleagues for their approval. Needless to say, my efforts were inadequate. From what I recall, they politely thanked me, but I do not recall seeing my Thomistic exercise posted in the hallways of the school, nor, strangely enough, do I recall getting any more publicity work that year. <laughs> so ended my career in advertising and my attempt to imitate the Summa. Tonight, I trust I have a better sense of my audience and of my subject matter, because I can't even dance. <laughs> so let's begin. Ad primum sic proceditur. Vedator quod non necesse sit aeneida legere. It seems that the Aeneid need not be read at Thomas Aquinas College. After all, Homer more than suffices. Not only is Homer prior to Virgil, but he's better. In fact, Virgil's Aeneid seems entirely dependent upon the Iliad and the Odyssey. Therefore, there's no need to read the Aeneid, certainly not in a crowded seminar syllabus. Give us more Thucydides. Okay, maybe not. Plato's Republic, maybe. Or more, another day for Homer himself. But spare us Virgil's derivative exercise. Praeteria. Furthermore, the Aeneid is unimportant and irrelevant today. Its pages are saturated with proper nouns, most of which are foreign to 21st century Americans. Time is short. Why should we make the effort to steep ourselves in the nomenclature of obscure tribes, false gods, exotic cities, and inane heroes? To be sure, in the case of sacred scripture, we can understand the need to acquaint ourselves with arcane persons, places, and things. It's good to know who the Edomites were. It's good to know the location of Tyre and Sidon. It's good to know what a phylactery is. Right? This kind of specificity we appreciate. Even in Homer, we can perhaps stomach the plethora of proper nouns because we sense that Homer is really speaking about universals, right? About human nature itself. But what is the payoff for knowing the name of Dido's murdered husband, what the Penates were, or the foggy geography of the underworld? Virgil's epic lacks the transcendence of sacred scripture and the universality of Homer. Therefore, the Aeneid need not be read. Praeteria. Aeneas is neither as illustrious nor as compelling as the Homeric heroes. In fact, he seems flat, dull, wooden, devoid of personality, an automaton. Who can relate to him? We are horrified, or at least awed, by swift-footed Achilles' frightful wrath, dazzled by crafty Odysseus's wily subterfuge, moved by manslaying Hector's devoted valor. But Pius Aeneas, Pius Aeneas, as a recent New Yorker article put it, he seems like a, a cold fish. Spare us this uninteresting mediocrity. Eliminate the Aeneid from the reading list. Praeteria. As Samuel Taylor Coleridge pronounced, if you take from Virgil his language and meter, what do you leave him? Or, as the American literary critic Mark Van Doren put it, Homer is a world, Virgil a style. To be sure, the Aeneid contains exquisitely quotable and eloquent lines. But education is about more than reveling in rhetorical pyrotechnics or pretentiously parroting the pastiche of poignant phrases. The philosophers of Thomas Aquinas College demand principles and arguments. Give them substance, not style. Take the Aeneid off the reading list. So I can tell you may sympathize with some of these, huh? Okay. <laughs> Do you wish I had given others? Are there more to come? I'm sure there are. From what I can tell, by the way, 
I'm not a Thomistic scholar, but I think the most objections that I've found in the Summa is 14, when St. Thomas discusses the rationale behind the sacrifices of the old law. Then again, in the famous five ways, there are only two, right? So there's no exact corollary I can think. But if you, I'm going to stick with these four. You can raise your own during the Q&A, okay? You can add more praeterios. Sed contra. Sed contra est quad dicit Thomas Stearns Eliotta. But on the contrary, T.S. Eliot, the 20th century's most influential poet critic, declared our classic, the classic of all Europe, is Virgil. I would only add the Aeneid is America's classic, too. Respondeo dicendum quod Aeneis omnino legenda est omnibus discipulis liberaliter instituendis. I answer that it must be said that the Aeneid absolutely must be read by all students in a liberal arts curriculum. First, we need to establish an important fact about the Aeneid. It is a deliberately unified, carefully planned work of art. When I was growing up, my father had a saying tacked above his desk in the basement. It was a quotation, actually it was a paraphrase, of Oscar Wilde, and here's how it went. I spent all morning putting a comma in and all afternoon taking it out. This could well describe Virgil's craftsmanship. The 12 books of the Aeneid, I'm going to do some math here, contain 9,896 verses. Now, it took Virgil 10 or 11 years to write these lines. If you do the math, you'll see he averaged two and a half lines a day. Let's say he wrote for five hours a day. That's a little over three words an hour. 20 minutes for each word. Now, of course, Virgil was not a clock, but it's clear that he wrote slowly, deliberately. Truth to be told, he had picked up his pace when writing the Georgics, an earlier poem, which, by the way, John Dryden called the best poem of the best poet, and yet few have ever heard of it today. Virgil averaged less than one line per day. So the Aeneid seems likely did not arise from a romantic outburst like Coleridge's Kublai Khan is said to have done. Rather, I think we need to picture a sculptor chipping away, little by little. Actually, Virgil himself offered a different metaphor. He likened himself, reportedly, to a she-bear who births cubs and then has to lick them into shape. When writing the Georgics, that earlier poem, Virgil was said to dictate verses in the morning and then spend the afternoon revising, pruning, and whittling them down. Virgil was not only slow and deliberate, but he was also a perfectionist. And evidence of this comes from the Latin text. Remember, the Aeneid's a poem. It's written in a particular meter, dactylic hexameter. Each line must have six feet. Yet, 54 lines of the Aeneid are incomplete. They lack six feet. The Aeneid was incomplete. Virgil reportedly wanted to spend three more years revising it. But in 19 BC, when he sensed that his death was imminent, he ordered that it be burned, orders that were not followed. Despite this incomplete state, the poem is highly structured. Over the years, readers have identified several patterns. The most obvious is indicated in the first few words, arma virum quecano. I think of arms and a man. Virgil not only advertises that half of his poem like the Iliad, will be about arma, weapons, books 7 to 12, and half, like the Odyssey, about a virum, a man, books 1 to 6, but he also suggests that he will rival and even surpass Homer because he will combine both Homeric epics in his one Roman epic. There are other patterns. Each book in the first half is said to correspond to its corresponding book in the second half, that is book one with book seven, two with eight, and so on. For example, in both one and seven, the Trojans arrive in a new land, Carthage and Italy respectively. In each case, the reputation precedes them. In each case, they're initially well-received. In each case, Juno stirs up trouble. 
and so on. You can find these parallels throughout these halves. Another pattern is that the even books tend to be marked by heightened pathos. Think of book two, the destruction of Troy. Book four, the tragedy of Aeneas and Dido. Book six, Aeneas in the underworld. While the odd books have more of the character of interludes, offering a relaxation of tension. Think of the Aegean wanderings of book three, the funeral games in book five. Some have also seen a tripart stru structure in the Aeneid, books one to four being the tragedy of Dido, five to eight the destiny of Rome, and nine to 12 the tragedy of Turnus. Now you may find these more or less convincing, but they do indicate that the Aeneid as we have it is in the works of an influential American Virginian scholar, one of the most consciously planned and carefully constructed poems of world literature. Now, what conclusions can be drawn from this fact? this careful craftsmanship? Well, first, the style of the Aeneid is meditative or reflective. Virgil's concerned not only with narrative, but with giving an interpretation to his narrative, or at least a perspective on the events he's narrating. This is, by the way, why a summary of the plot of the Aeneid falls flat, because Virgil's genius lies in imparting this perspective, which a summary cannot capture. One example of this meditative perspective is the piercing question that Virgil occasionally inserts. The prologue contains one of these questions, an important one. After identifying Aeneas as a man of remarkable pietas, Virgil wonders why he nevertheless suffered so greatly. Tantae nanimis celestibus ire. Can there be anger so great in the hearts of gods on high? Now, Virgil never explicitly answers that question, but it looms over the entire epic and introduces a central theme, which we might paraphrase, is there merit in pietas? Or again, is the universe hostile to human happiness? Another such question is in book nine, when Nisus tells Euryalus of his daring plan. Nisus wonders, do the gods put this fire in our hearts, Euryalus, or do our passions become our gods? In other words, are epic heroes pious, or are they merely idolaters? Or less tendentiously, whence comes human motivation? A final such question is in Book 10. After Aeneas kills the Latin warrior Lycus, Lycus, Virgil tells us, was born by Caesarean section after his mother had died. And as an infant, Lycus had been consecrated to Apollo. Virgil asks, why? He asks Apollo, did you let him escape steel as a baby, but not now? These sorts of questiones disputatae are a sign that we're dealing with a reflective, even a philosophic poet. Another sign can be found in the Aeneid's meditative similes. Consider the following simile from book one. It's when Neptune calms the storm that had been incited by Juno. I'll quote, riots will often break out in a crowded assembly when the rabble are roused. Torches and stones are soon flying. Fury always finds weapons. But then all eyes light upon a loyal citizen, a man of respect. The crowd stands still in hushed expectation. And with grave words, he masters their tempers and calms their hearts. So too, the crashing sea fell silent as its sire, surveying the watery expanse, drove his chariot under a clear sky, giving the horses free rein. If only that calming had taken place in the summer of 2020, as statues were being toppled by mobs. But do you appreciate Virgil's reversal? Homeric similes invoke the natural world to explain human behavior. But here, in the very first simile of the Aeneid, Virgil invokes human affairs, specifically seen from Roman civic life, to explain a natural phenomenon. So crowd control is expressing the common of the storm. He also introduces vocabulary central to the poem's meaning, furor, which leads to disorder and violence, can be overcome by pietas, which directs and soothes the passions. The simile, it is clear, is not mere embellishment. It is programmatic. A final related example of Virgil's reflective poetry is his sustained and developed use of imagery. Now, as with the similes, at times we may be tempted to dismiss poetic imagery as mere embellishment. But in the case of Virgil, the careful, deliberate, deliberate, reflective Virgil, this would be a grave mistake. Let me show you by summarizing a famous article written by the war hero, a man of letters, 
Bernard M.W. Knox. Now, I know that you use Fagel's translation here in your seminars, but if you ever have a chance, try to get your hands on Robert Fitzgerald's translation, if for no other reason, just to read the introduction. Because Knox, in this introduction, describes his own rediscovery of Virgil, which occurred in all places in a bombed-out Italian villa during the Second World War as Knox took a break from firing his machine gun at German troops. So hopefully that'll entice you to go read it. It's a fantastic introduction. But Knox's insight in this article I want to summarize concerns book two, which, as you recall, recounts the fall of Troy. It's only in book two, and not in Homer, that we learn the full sag of the Trojan horse, of mendacious Sinon, of ruthless Pyrrhus, Achilles' son. We see the now iconic image of Aeneas fleeing, burning Troy, his father draped across his shoulders, one of his warrior's hands grasping his son's small hand, his soon-to-be-lost wife following his footsteps. Now, as Knox demonstrated, beneath the pathos of book two lies a recurring image, that of the serpent. In the beginning of the book, Laocoon and his two sons, do you remember that scene? They're entwined by two serpents who ominously come from Tenedos, where the Greeks have it to be hiding. In the middle of the book, when Aeneas and his fellow Trojans don Greek armor in a very un-Roman act of duplicity, they themselves are likened to snakes concealed in the grass. And at the end of the book, Pyrrhus, Achilles' son, is said to slough off his skin like a serpent. It was Knox's insight to grasp that each of these passages draws upon a different connotation of snakes, concealment, violence, and renewal. And to show that these connotations not only add color and interest, but they interpret the plot by providing a sort of running commentary. Specifically, the imagery connotes the deceit of the Greeks, the violent carnage of battle, as well as the promise of Troy's rebirth. Now, some of you may wonder, did Virgil really intend this? And Knox deflects this question. He says that's a barren and irrelevant question. But he does think that Virgil was conscious of what he's doing. In the end, Knox concludes, quote, to probe Virgil's mind at work is beyond any powers of analysis, though analysis may occasionally reveal fresh treasures in the poetry which his mind produced. There is no fear, in Virgil's case, that the process may dissipate the poetry. Its riches are inexhaustible. So one consequence of Virgil's reflective style is that you have to read him differently from Homer. Now, I'm not suggesting that Homer is unreflective, but I am suggesting that Virgil's poetry is denser than Homer's. In part, this reflects the manner of composition. Homer is a culmination of a tradition of oral composition. Bards who compiled, without the aid of writing, lengthy tales about legendary heroes. These poems were largely in the memory. And in each retelling, a bard could embellish or alter, tailor his story to particular audiences. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that Homer was merely a good storyteller, not at all. But I am saying that Homer's poetry was composed for the ear, for an audience. It moves swiftly with much repetition, frequent digression, formulaic language. Virgil's poetry, of course, should be heard too. But Virgil was also composing for readers. In fact, Virgil's poetry reflects the prodigious learning of the city of Alexandria, Egypt, with its famous library, scientists, and scholars, a place where, as one of my professors in graduate school used to say, for the first time it was possible to write books by means of books. So in addition to being filled with piercing questions, thought-provoking similes, and elaborate imagery, the Aeneid is replete with learned allusions to earlier Greek and Roman poets, chiefly Homer himself. You don't have to grasp all these allusions, enjoy the poem, but they are there for those who choose to probe them. In sum, when you read Virgil, you have to adopt a corollary of that Oscar Wilde quotation with which I began. You have to spend the morning reading a few lines and in the afternoon rereading and pondering them. Now, I'm afraid that some of you may be scratching your heads a bit at this point, wondering, waiting for the real meat and potatoes of this talk. You may be thinking, yes, I get it. Virgil may have been a skilled a meticulous craftsman. I take your word. His poetry is rich with images and densely elusive. But where's the substance? 
Does the Aeneid present themes for us to consider? And the answer is a resounding yes. What are some of those themes? The first is the city and the state. Here we see a big difference between the Homeric epics and the Aeneid. The Greek army at Troy was a loose confederation of contingents from various city-states. Remember the famous catalog of ships in Book 2 of the Iliad? Some of you are fresh off reading that, right? This is the section where, as one of my college professors put it, students tend to nod off while historians perk up. Right? But following the war, what would happen to all those contingents of warriors? They go to the separate places. Right? And they'd have little to do with one another. The city and political organization in general are in the background of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Not so in the Aeneid. The theme of the Aeneid is the foundation of a city, dum condereturbem. Aeneas is not alone in this regard. Others too are building cities. Remember what Dido is doing in Carthage. She's building a city. So much so that Aeneas is envious of this. He says when he first encounters, oh, fortunati quodum yam how happy you are. Those of you whose walls are already rising. Aeneas, in fact, even helps her build cities scandalously. Acestes, a Trojan, he's built a city in Sicily where some of Aeneas' weary companions choose to reside rather than proceeding on to Italy. Diomedes is building a city in Italy. But the Roman city is to be different from those other ones. It has a universal mission, not only to hold sway with a vast imperium, but to encompass within itself Trojans, Italians, Latins, Etruscans, and Greeks, many ethnic groups. Much of the Aeneid probes the meaning and composition of the city, and in the first part of the poem, Aeneas, exhausted, not surprisingly, repeatedly attempts to stake out his city prematurely before his destiny. Tangential to the theme of the city is the theme of power. The conflict in the Iliad concerns an age-old tension between military prowess and political authority. What happens when these are not shared in the same person and they come into conflict? Achilles versus Agamemnon. But remember, following the war, each, if he survives, will go a separate way. The conflict is personal. It's local. By contrast, in the Aeneid, Virgil directly takes up the question of political power and of empire. The Latin word imperium appears 40 times in the poem. The first time is surprising it's in conjunction with Aeolus. You remember Aeolus, the keeper of the winds? Right? We're told uh, that he keeps these winds in check by exercising imperium, empire. Later in book one, Jupiter reassures an anxious Venus that whatever sufferings Aeneas will undergo, his descendants will enjoy imperium sine fine, imper empire without end. When Aeneas visits Anchises in the underworld, we learn that the vocation of Aeneas' people is to erect walls, establish peace, and rule over the nations. Two, reged imperio populos. This famous line contains an unexpected word. The two in the Latin refers, of course, to Aeneas. But Anchises did not call his son by name. He calls him Romane. You, Roman, Romane, remember to rule the nations with empire. This is your art. Now, from the perspective of the narrative, the Romans didn't yet exist. They were only in potentiality. So Virgil's epic is not so much about Aeneas as it is about Rome and Rome's power. Now here, I want to acknowledge what has, since 1963 to be exact, been a dominant issue in Virgilian criticism. And some of you may have strong feelings about this. I think it may have come up in your seminars, I would suspect. Is the Aeneid a celebration of the Emperor Augustus and the Roman achievement, or does it rather offer a subtle critique? Subtle, because Augustus was alive, right? And he was in power when Virgil was writing, and Virgil owed much to Augustus' right-hand man, Mycenaeus. Virgil was connected, we might say. Now, beginning in the 1960s, some critics began to highlight those passages in which Virgil seems to cast a cloud over the Roman achievement. Think of his poignant elegies over fallen warriors, especially if they're young. And, of course, think of the enigmatic ending. The Aeneid's last words, they don't describe Aeneas. What do they describe? Turnus, his life departing indignantly with a groan into the shades after Aeneas mercilessly kills him. Vitaque cum gemitu fugit indignata subumbras. 
I mean, that's how it ends. Not with Aeneas, but with Turnus. Now, it's not my intention here to settle this dispute between what have been dubbed the optimists and the pessimists. My intention here is simpler, just to point out that one would never ask such a question about the Homeric epics. But Virgil's poem will not let you avoid it. The Aeneid is reflective and substantial poetry. This leads to the third theme that I want to identify from the Aeneid, the role of history. Here again, we see how starkly Virgil differs from Homer. Homer's poems, although they have been mined by historians because they offer valuable clues to early Greek civilization, do not concern history. In his preface to Paradise Lost, C.S. Lewis observed, this is a quote, there is no pretense, indeed no possibility of pretending that the world, or even Greece, would have been much altered if Odysseus had never got home at all. So to the Iliad. Despite his background, a great clash between Europe and Asia, it's not really about history. It's about the wrath of one man and its dreadful consequences. The Iliad doesn't even relate the fall of Troy. It stops short with Hector's funeral and a fragile truce. But the Aeneid is unintelligible without an historical perspective. It deals not with the generic, the foundation of a city per se, but or the exercise of imperium in the abstract, but with the rise of one particular city, Rome. Think of how many episodes in the Aeneid depict this specific history. Think about Dido's dying curse in book four, the prediction of eternal enmity between Carthage and Rome, and think about that in light of the three Punic Wars that, for Virgil's readers, had already taken place. Think especially of book six, Anchises in Elysium, viewing the Hall of Fame of Roman statesmen and heroes, yet to be born from the perspective of the narrative, but very real and often very recent for Virgil's readers. Think too of book eight, the most Roman book in the Aeneid, when Evander guides Aeneas through the future site of Rome, places that Virgil's readers would know well. Perhaps best of all, think of Aeneas's shield and contrast it with Achilles' shield. The latter depicts life itself with generic scenes of agriculture, civic life, a wedding. But what's on Aeneas's shield? It depicts res italas romanorumque triumphos, Italian things and Roman triumphs, with the Battle of Actium, the centerpiece. It was Virgil's genius to elide the mythical and the historic. Aeneas, Romulus, Augustus, all Romans. The last theme I want to highlight about the Aeneid, which again sets it apart from Homer, is teleology. Teleology, telos, the Greek end. The world of the Aeneid moves toward a fulfillment, a resolution, an end. One way to appreciate this is to consider the role of the gods. In Homer, the gods are capricious, foils for human beings, largely untouched by the world of human affairs, often comical and subject to the mysterious concept that Homer dubs fate. But in the Aeneid, the gods take sides. Even Jupiter himself. And although Virgil continues to speak of fate, it seems that it is not quite possible to distinguish fate from Jupiter's will. And what is Jupiter's will? That Aeneas make it to Italy, that his descendants found Rome, that Rome rule the nations, and that the Roman Empire perdure. All of the movement in the Aeneid, the terrific storm in book one, the Aegean wanderings in book three, the tragic affair in book four, the sailing in book five, the descent to the underworld in book six, the mission to Evander in book seven and eight, the carnage of books nine through 12, all of this leads somewhere. There's really nothing similar in the Iliad and the Odyssey. The backdrop to Homeric poetry is the human quest to find meaning in the face of looming death. One finds this meaning either in prowess on the battlefield, the Iliad, or in domestic felicity, the Odyssey. Aeneas, by contrast, has a mission, a destiny with universal import. It is not simply a homecoming, nor is it just a death. It is, in fact, a something genuinely new, which cannot yet be seen, but is gradually believed, towards which Aeneas and his companions, importantly enough, are being led which will affect the entire world. At times, I fear we are displeased with the destiny theme of the Aeneid, as if it somehow impinged on the character's freedom and made them less interesting 
To which I would only say, how could we, as Catholics, ever think that a vocation renders life less free or less interesting? Now, thus far, I've tried to show that the Aeneid warrants the attention of students because of its aesthetics and its themes. But suppose you're not convinced. Mm. <laughs> you don't have to fess up. Suppose you're not convinced. Well, one word will put to rest any lingering doubts. Dante. Dante. How can you engage the divine comedy unless you've read and closely studied the Aeneid? I would go so far as to say that it is more important for readers of Dante to have read the Aeneid than it is for readers of the Aeneid to have read Homer. Now, you may balk at a claim like that. I know I would. It smacks of pretentiousness and arrogance of modern scholarship compromised by the never-ending quest to identify the sources or influences upon a great work, but in the case of Dante, it's absolutely true. Because Virgil was not just an influence upon Dante, but Virgil is a character, a leading character in the Divine Comedy. And characters in the Aeneid regularly populate the Inferno, whose structure reflects so much of Aeneid Book Six. Now, it's interesting, Dante himself considered Homer the greatest poet, lord of the song preeminent, who o'er the others like an eagle soars. All right, Homer. But whom did he choose as his guide? Virgil. It was not only because of Virgil's talent, but it's because of the centrality of Roman culture, even to Christianity. According to T.S. Eliot, the link between Virgil and Dante is, quote, central to European civilization because Roman culture, according to Dante and others, is a figura, an anticipation of Christianity. More on this at the end. Now, Dante's not alone. When you read or reread St. Augustine's Confessions, pay attention to the role of Virgil. I'm not speaking about the obvious, right? Augustine's lament for being too affected as a student by the tragedy of Dido. One of the best lines in Latin in the entire Confessions is when he talks about what can be more miserable than a miserable person, not having pity on himself, but having pity on Dido, and so on. It's a marvelous line. That's not what I'm talking about, nor am I talking about the school exercise that he relates, where he had to dramatize Juno's wrath. No, I'm talking about something else. When Augustine describes his surreptitious departure from Africa for Rome, you might think of Aeneas. Both Augustine and Aeneas, after all, unexpectedly quit Carthage for Italy, having deceived, yes, outright deceived, the women who loved them, who in turn, women in turn, were inconsolable when they realized that they had been abandoned. Do you know what St. Augustine did to his poor mother? He told her, there's a shrine. St. Cyprian here, I know you're a pious woman. I've known you always to be a, a mother who prays. I think you'd really enjoy visiting the shrine. And it's when she goes to visit the shrine that he sneaks out. He boards the ship and absconds to Italy. Can you imagine that? In the name of having her go pray? And she comes out and sees the ship departing. And what have you done to me, son? Okay. But uh, she has some choice words, and then she goes home. The parallel stops there, of course, because St. Monica recovered and followed her son to Italy, <laughs> and all the way to Milan, and to his baptism, while Dido cursed the Romans and killed herself. But I trust you see my point. St. Augustine had so assimilated Virgil that he thought with Virgil. He was, in fact, a lifelong reader of Virgil, even while on retreat, preparing for his baptism most important day of his life, he's preparing for baptism, he was accustomed to have a half book of Virgil read aloud to him every day before dinner. Not sure if Father Marky would recommend that as baptismal preparation, but hold on one second, something else here. Throughout the ages, sensitive readers have similarly been moved by the need. In more recent times, the great British polymath 
priest, Ronald Knox, titled his book about his conversion to Catholicism, A Spiritual Aeneid. He too, this is astonishing, like Augustine, was reading the Aeneid right up to the time of his reception into the church. He has a line where he says, I finished the Aeneid, next day he's baptized. In a letter Knox wrote on the eve of, I'm assuming he had read it many times before, but he's re he reread the Aeneid. In a letter Knox wrote on the eve of his re reception into the church, he cited a line from Aeneid 6, Yam tanditaliae fugientis prendimus oras, at last, at last, we're laying hold of that ever-receding Italy. Now, you don't have to be so moved by the Aeneid, but it is good, at least, for you to know that this text has so moved others. And for students being liberally educated, a responsible reading of the Aeneid is indispensable. Ad primum ergo dicendum quad. So let's go back to those objections. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but when I read St. Thomas, I struggle to recall what the objections were by the time I get to the responses, right? So the first one involved um, Homer's superiority and Virgil's derivative nature, and there's no need to do the lesser of the two. To the first objection, it must be said that regardless of whether one prefers Virgil or Homer, and I want to be clear, because it probably isn't yet, that it's not my intention tonight to convince you that Virgil is superior. Is that, am I pleading too much on that case? It's not my intention to convince you that Virgil is superior. But I think one must stoutly reject the charge that Virgil was merely Homer's imitator, as if he lacked originality, or worse, that he was a plagiarist. The charge of plagiarism, by the way, was already made in Virgil's own lifetime. According to Suetonius, Virgil used to offer the following rejoinder to this charge of plagiarism. He used to say, quote, why don't my critics also attempt the same thefts? If they do, they will realize that it is easier to filch his club from Hercules than a line from Homer. In other words, go try it. Go try it for yourselves, and you'll see I'm not plagiarizing. Lists detailing the correspondences between Homer and Virgil are easy to come by. But what do these lists mean? You won't know until you sit down and examine the passages side by side at length. And if you do so, you will discover that Virgil's borrowing is always an artistic adaptation, a true appropriation, a making of one's own, in which the original is re reworked for new purposes. I hope I have demonstrated, at least, that Virgil's themes were not Homer's. So they had to be for different purposes. But rather than giving you a specific examples of this, I want to comment on a larger theme. The role of the Romans in Western civilization, and this is something that's dear to my heart. So often we hear that the fonts of Western civilization are the Greeks and the Jews, right? Athens and Jerusalem. It's become a trope. But what about the Romans? Their role, I fear, is neglected or even disparaged. Sometimes detecting similarities, which are plentiful, between Roman and Greek achievements, we may be tempted to regard Roman civilization in general as somehow derivative and therefore not worthy of attention. This can take several forms. See if you sympathize with any of these. It could take the form of a conviction that the only real philosophers were the Greeks. It could take the form of a belief that the Latin language is somehow not as supple, sophisticated, or richly redolent as Greek, and therefore can be disregarded. It could take a, a form of a judgment that the Roman contribution to Western civilization is limited to the necessary but relatively unexciting stuff of law and military stuff. It could take the form of an assessment that Roman art, maybe sculpture, lacks depth and is purely imitative of Greek art. It could take the form of a belief that the Latin church fathers, with the exception of St. Augustine, lacked originality and were simply transmitting the profundity of the Greek fathers. It could involve a suspicion that the Vulgate, the venerable Vulgate, somehow clouds the meaning of sacred scripture and must be circumvented. We've got to get back to the Greek and the Hebrew. The Vulgate stands in the way. 
Now, at times, perhaps influenced by such notions, we may be tempted to do what I call an end run around the Romans, to get to some supposedly pure font of Greek wisdom, which the clumsy and practically minded Romans muddied or somehow compromised. Now, I have no argument against the profundity of the Greeks, not at all. I want rather to rehabilitate the Romans, especially if you harbor any of the above notions. I know that I have harbored them. In fact, as a sophomore, Dr. Shields mentioned I attended a great books program, somewhat similar to the one that you all are in. And in my sophomore seminar, the second installment, we had oral exams, just as you do. And I uh, disparaged Cicero as inferior to the Greeks in this exam, and my professor happened to be a leading Ciceronian scholar, right? <laughs> now, not long ago, the French Catholic man of letters, Remy Brague, offered an intriguing rehabilitation of the Romans that I'm going to share with you. The Romans, to be sure, at times were mere conduits for the riches of Greek culture, yet being a conduit or an aqueduct to use a Roman image, is not to be disparaged. It involves a recognition that there is something higher that must be worked up to and then brought down, so to speak. This was the great Roman achievement. I'll quote here, to have spread the riches of Hellenism and to have transmitted it down to us. It could have been otherwise. The Romans could have protested the riches of Greek culture, kept it at an arm's length, refused to be influenced by it. There are instances in history where cultures have rejected salutary influences from the outside, right? But to their credit, and to our benefit, the Romans did not. This attitude of openness to the riches of Greek culture, a willingness to embrace it and to expend the effort in transmitting it, is what Bragg sees as distinctively Roman. In this regard, by the way, you might think of the Aeneid, which depicts the future site of Rome as a Greek settlement. How humbling is that for the Romans to realize that their whole city takes shape on what was a Greek colony? A remarkable cultural humility. Consider, too, that Virgil's borrowings, his indebtedness to Homer, is in fact a sign of his own remarkable humility towards the greatness of Greek culture. And this attitude is not limited to classical Romans. In fact, Bragg argues all of us, to some extent, find ourselves in the position of the Romans, of being recipients and potential heirs of a tradition that is not our own. We are in a secondary position with respect to the culture that we aspire to embrace. As Bragg puts it, to be Roman is to have above one a classicism to imitate and below one a barbarity to subdue. And before I'm shoved off the stage, as being culturally insensitive, I should clarify that this barbarity is principally within ourselves. It's within ourselves, right? We sense the need to overcome that. Again, to be Roman is to experience the ancient as new and as something renewed by its transplantation in new soil. And that's a quotation. For this reason, Bragg argues that the true identity of Europe is Roman, not Greek or Hebrew inasmuch as its history has been one of receiving and handing down what was not originally its own. And even more so is this true about the United States, isn't it right? And I was thinking, you in Northfield, Thomas Aquinas Northfield, may be said to be among the most Roman of all, in that you have the experience and the honor, the great privilege of renewing this ancient tradition by transplanting it into new soil. Ad secundum dicendum quad. Now this was about the specificity that, wow, it takes so much trouble to learn all these proper nouns in Virgil. Is it really worth it? What's the payoff? Specificity, abundant proper nouns are by no means unique to Virgil. They're part of epic, the genre itself. As C.S. Lewis has shown, this epic specificity is highly stylized and it infuses the poem with grandeur and solemnity. But I want to go further than this. For all Westerners, and especially for Catholics, the specificity of Rome is vital. I don't know if you've ever been to the North American College in Rome, but there's a relatively new building there, a large tower 
that bears a plaque with an inscription from the early Christian poet, St. Paulinus of Nola. And in Latin it says, Resonare Christum Corde Romano, to echo Christ with a Roman heart. Now, this exhortation doesn't just apply to seminarians. It applies to all liberally educated Catholics today. But what does it mean to have a Roman heart? Corde Romano. Well, in my opinion, for students, it absolutely entails engaging the pagan Romans and the unique history of the city of Rome. Our roots as Westerners and as Catholics lie in Rome. An address delivered during the Second World War, when the future of Europe was very much in jeopardy, T.S. Eliot said, and I'm going to quote, as Aeneas is to Rome, so is ancient Rome to Europe. Thus, Virgil acquires the centrality of the unique classic. He is at the center of European civilization in a position which no other poet can share or usurp. The Roman Empire and the Latin language were not any empire in any language, but an empire in a language with a unique destiny in relation to ourselves. And the poet in whom that empire and that language came to consciousness and expression is a poet of unique destiny. And we should note, Eliot was not Roman Catholic. How much more should we, as Roman Catholics, say this? Our faith is an historical faith. It's founded on historical events that took place in Israel, the virgin birth, the crucifixion of our Lord, his resurrection. The one church founded by our Lord has an historical foundation and a specific history, first in Jerusalem and Antioch and eventually in Rome. For Catholics, the city of Rome is unique. It alone had a dual apostolic foundation, St. Peter and Paul. And the Bishop of Rome, of course, is the Holy Father. But this apostolic foundation was made upon an existing city. When Saints Peter and Paul died there, Rome already enjoyed a lengthy history and a vibrant culture. The church in Rome gradually inserted itself into and later incorporated many of these features of Roman culture, some of which remain up to the present day. Just one example, if you ever study the prayers of the Roman liturgy, you will see that they, the style of these prayers owes something to the style of pagan Roman prayer, early Roman religion. Now, my point is that educated Catholics ought to have a unique attachment to the city of Rome, an attachment that includes, especially for scholars, an interest in the history of Rome, in the institution of the Romans, even those that predate the apostolic foundation. Consequently, any poem that purports to be about the foundation of this city and its institutions is of interest to Catholics. It's not just a practical matter. That is, many names in the Aeneid reappear in later authors, Dante in particular. Okay, that's true. Yes, you could either endlessly consult Wikipedia or you could just read the Aeneid, and that's true. But it's more than that. It's more than that. The specificity of Rome is sanctioned by divine providence. And that's not just my claim. As Dante said to Virgil, in the second canto of the Inferno, Aeneas, quote, was chosen in the heaven of heavens, father of sacred Rome and her command. And these, if we would speak the truth, were set firmly in place to be the holy throne where the successor to great Peter sits. That's the Roman civilization as the figura, the anticipation of Christianity. A tertium dicendum quad. I kind of forget what my own third objection was at this point, right? But uh, let's see. The third objection. Uh, the third objection was that Aeneas is not as compelling or illustrious as the Homeric heroes. Well, Aeneas is a richer character than the Homeric heroes. Only Odysseus might rival him. Certainly neither Achilles nor Agamemnon nor Menelaus nor Diomedes rivals him. This is true in two senses. First, Aeneas is shown in more dimensions than any of the Homeric F heroes. We see Aeneas in war and in peace, warrior and traveler, priest, victim, master of ceremonies, suppliant. We see him in all sorts of relationships, loyal and deferential son, proud father, although it is curious, he only speaks to his son once in the entire poem, as friend or companion, as bereaved husband, as infatuated lover, and as scorned former lover. What perhaps bothers readers 
is Aeneas's passivity, yeah? or his tendency to react rather than initiate. But the multiple relationships just enunciated helped explain this. Aeneas is rarely alone. He is not solipsistic. He does not brood. He has manifold responsibilities. This, after all, is the meaning of pietas. It's true. There are no extended emotive outbursts from Aeneas. Remember his first speech to shipwrecked men in book one. At the end of the speech, Virgil comments, Aeneas said this, and although he was sick with worry, he put on a good face. He pushed his anguish deep into his heart. Now, if we find this fact boring, perhaps we need to question whether we are not too beholden to a narrow notion of heroism. A second reason Aeneas is a richer character than any Homeric hero is that he changes, and it's not always for the better. The latter books of the Aeneid, the Iliadic part, show how warfare changes him. Already in book two, as the city was going up in flames, Aeneas changed. He begins to act like a Greek, deceitfully donning Greek armor, not fighting fair, that is. Despite initial success, the strategy backfires. In book 10, following the death of Pallas, Aeneas becomes savage. He mows down everything before him. These are quotes. He's flush with slaughter. He taunts his opponents. He brutally slaughters an Italian priest. In fact, the Latin word used in that context is immolat, as though Aeneas is sacrificing the priest. He rejects the pleas of suppliants. Worst of all, in a most un-Roman act of violence, he seizes eight victims to serve as sacrificial offerings to Pallas's shade. Aeneas, that is, acts with furor and with ira, the very qualities that mark Juno. It is only when Aeneas encounters Lausus's filial pietas that he checks himself, experiences pity, and utters a poignant lament. As for the charge that he is an automaton, consider book two. What does Aeneas do when Hector appears to him and commands him to flee? He goes right back into battle. A little later, when Venus appears and urges him to flee the now lost city, what, what does Aeneas do? He disobeys, straps on a sword, prepares again to plunge into battle. Were Aeneas an automaton, he would promptly obey. Rather, Aeneas has a mind and will of his own. Perhaps the reason many see woodenness in him is due to his conduct with Dido. How promptly Aeneas ends their affair in response to the summons from Mercury. How Aeneas stands before Dido like a stone crag apparently emotionless, as Dido tears into him. Yet, it would be a mistake to regard him as unfeeling. The problem, as others have shown, is that there were no words with which Aeneas could simultaneously express his genuine feeling for Dido, as well as his sense that Pietas required him to leave. Would it really have been better for Virgil to have put into Aeneas' mouth an emotive rejoinder to Dido at that moment? This was not Aeneas' way, nor was it Virgil's. As one perceptive scholar has remarked, virtually all the major emotional speeches of persuasion or coercion in the Aeneid contain falsehood and misrepresentation, generate or are generated by passion, and lead to calamity. Of course, you do not have to like Aeneas. You may still prefer any number of Homeric heroes, but the charge that he is flat and uninteresting does not hold weight. C.S. Lewis, again, will have the last words here. I have read... Lewis relates that Virgil's Aeneas, so guided by dreams and omens, is hardly the shadow of a man beside Homer's Achilles. But a man, an adult, is precisely what he is. Achilles had been little more than a passionate boy. A little later, Lewis remarks that Virgil describes once and for all the very quality of most human life as it is experienced by anyone who has not yet risen to holiness or sunk to animality. Ad quartum decendum quod. I think I've already demonstrated that the Aeneid is a poem of substance, that it treats serious themes. So I'm liberated in a very untimistic way because St. Thomas is always economical and always disciplined, but I'm not St. Thomas, so I'm neither economical nor disciplined. I'm liberated to dilate 
least for a few moments upon Virgil's style, which is integral to his substance. This is a pleasure to do. In the words of Stanley Lombardo, Virgil's word music is more than mortal. Or, as Ronald Knox put it, Virgil had a gift of summing up in a phrase used at random the aspiration and the tragedy of minds he could never have understood. Virgil has long been recognized as a master of the Latin hexameter. In some ways, his feat is more impressive than Homer's because the Latin language has a greater proportion of long syllables than does Greek, and therefore it's more challenging to write Latin in a quantitative meter. That is, a pattern not of stressed and unstressed, but of long and short syllables. As with Virgil's imagery and similes, his metrical town is not mere embellishment. Let me give you a few examples. When Virgil describes two, the two snakes that make a beeline for Laocoon and his sons, he makes use of something called hyperbaton, the ability in Latin, being an inflected language, which you all are well appreciating now, to separate an adjective from the noun it modifies, right? This is what makes reading Latin challenging, but it also presents possibilities for a poet. This is how this passage sounds in English if I were to translate word for word. But look, twin from Tenedos through the tranquil sea, I shudder to recall with massive coils, snakes. Yeah, you get it? Nine words intervene between twin and snakes. Now why would Virgil do that? Just for fun? Well, no, because he wants the architecture of the line to reinforce the subject matter. He's talking about snakes, right? Signing you with snakes, after all. So he allows the Latin language to evoke the snakes themselves. Listen to this line. It's also from book two. Exoditor clamorque virum clangorque tubarum. Can you hear it? The onomatopoeia? He's describing the sounding of a trumpet. Listen again, exoditor clamorque virum clangorque tubarum. It'd be a lot better if I could trill my R's better. But you get the point. Listen to this line. Quadrupedante putrem sonitu quatidungula campum. He's describing the galloping of horses. You can hear it, can't you? Listen to this line from Aeneas' encounter with Dido in the underworld. Now the roles are reversed, do you remember? Now he wants to talk to her and she doesn't want to give him the time of day. Aeneas is now the one asking, Quem fugis, whom do you flee? Aeneas continues, Extremum fato quad tad locorocrest. The line oddly ends on two monosyllables, oc est. It's a broken rhythm. It's as if Aeneas were gasping for breath. He's struggling for words. He's choked up we might say. So the style conveys, or at least corroborates, the substance. Now, the bold claim that you just have to see for yourselves, although I know some of you have read some of the Aeneid in Latin, and you can vouch for this, but the bold claim is nearly every line, nearly every line of the Aeneid contains something like that. It's astonishing. But Virgil's style is evident not only in individual lines. Let me give a more comprehensive example, and this will be it, I promise you. When I was in college pursuing a great books program, I was asked in a final exam for seminar whether I thought Homer was an anti-war poet. What would you say <laughs> if you were asked something similar about Homer or Virgil? Tough thing. Well, Virgil, it seems clear to most readers, simultaneously elicits sympathy for the victims of war and for the warriors in war. And he also manages to suggest that the violence of war is somehow necessary to secure civilization. Think in particular about the deaths of Lausus and Mezentius in Book 10. It's one of the most poignant passages in the poem. Recall the scene, Aeneas has just struck Mezentius when Lausus, his son, injects himself between them, groaning and weeping for his injured father. And at this point, Virgil pauses in his narrative, and he exclaims, neither your death nor your heroic deeds of antiquity can confer belief in prowess so great, nor you yourself, noble young man, so worthy of memory, will I leave in silence. 
Now, clearly, Mezentius had to be deposed of, disposed of. Not only was he a tyrant in his native Etruria, but he was an obstacle to Aeneas' destiny. Moreover, Mezentius seems not to have been a good man. Virgil twice introduces him with the epithet scorner of the gods, contemptor divum. One commentator says of Mezentius that he is the most barbaric character in the Aeneid, yet, as the same commentator notes, even for him, at the moment of death, Virgil evokes sympathy. It is this quality that intrigues and enchants readers of Virgil. The Aeneid, it has been said, is neither triumphalist nor defeatist, but rather exhibits, quote, a pervasive tension between exultation and lament. Longinus, the first century AD literary critic, likened the Iliad to the blazing noonday sun. And the Odyssey, he said, had the magical glow of the setting sun. The Aeneid, according to a recent translator, is a chiaroscuro, a play of light amid the shadows of evening, a darkness visible. Well, Aquinas' articles in the Summa usually end without round Ciceronian finish. It's enough for the angelic doctor to have made the necessary distinctions, to have imparted his inimitable clarity, and to have answered objections. Having done all of this in workmanlike fashion, he proceeds to the next article. Well, as I said, I am no St. Thomas. So I feel it necessary to conclude with a brief exhortation and a tribute. Looking back on my own great books education, for which I am grateful, one glaring deficiency was the lack of integration of a classical language into the curriculum. Don't get me wrong, two semesters were required, but only once do I ever recall a professor in a seminar invoking the Latin that we were required to learn. That's a shame. Here at Thomas Aquinas, from what I can gather from conversations with alumni and my son, the experience is different. Latin, like Euclid, is foundational and it's taught as a liberal art. Without this integration, Latin will wither and die. So persevere with Latin and consider persevering with it even when your required courses come to an end. For centuries, reading the Aeneid in Latin was a culmination of, an incentive for, and a justification of the study of Latin grammar. This could be true for you too. Regardless of whether you have any interest in reading the Aeneid in Latin, I want to commend you students for applying yourselves so diligently to the fine curriculum offered at Thomas Aquinas College, a place where happily the Aeneid is taught, where, if not universally loved, it is at least respected and well considered. Bravo to your tutors and the founders and governors of your college who have defended and will continue to defend this curriculum in the face of the numerous and growing challenges in the future. Thank you.